all Galatians chapter 5. We are almost done with this book, so by the end of October we'll be done with Galatians, and then we'll be working our way into a short little series entitled The Prayers of Paul. After that we'll do an Advent series this Christmas in December, and then in January Habakkuk, and after that a series in Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians called Sinners Called Saints. So pretty much got a map for where we're going to be in the Word over the next year or two. Uh, unless Jesus returns, which we're really praying for. So Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 this morning, beginning in verse 13. I feel like every book I get into is like my favorite book. I always want to say this is like my favorite book. This is my favorite book. Galatians chapter 5, reading from your real Bibles or your phones or up on the screens. I'll read will herald this as the word of God, which we believe here at Taproot. This is the inspired words of God to us, to which we respond prayerfully. Speak, Lord, your servants here. Galatians chapter five. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Grab your seats, we'll pray. We settle our hearts before you here on this Sunday morning and we recognize that across the land, across the globe, the church on this particular day, every seven days, gathers and opens your word and millions upon millions of Christians, some in community centers like this, others in gargantuan buildings, others, Lord, in this 24-hour period are tucked away in basements with just fragments of the New Testament and they're pouring over them. Together, Lord, today we pray to hear from the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who only have the scripture in their mind this morning as they are imprisoned, having been taken captive, refusing to deny Christ. We pray, Father, for our brother and sister churches throughout the Seattle metro this morning that the Spirit would come and bind us together as the best of friends, as a body of believers, as a family. And I pray for Taproot Church this morning, this small little gathering of Christians, seemingly on the landscape of society, meaningless and without impact. But the sovereign God of the universe is in this place today the sovereign God of the universe by the Holy Spirit indwells each of these hearts through faith. And that is the beginning of transformation. Transformation of the individual, transformation of society, and one day, Lord Jesus, 
transformation of the entire world. So we wait with eager anticipation for your coming. We pray with humble dependence today to hear from you that no man, no woman, no soul would be left untouched, but that you would move in our midst, guiding and directing, encouraging and strengthening until that day that we plead, we plead with you, which be soon when Christ comes to get us and your kingdom is established on earth as it is in heaven. We worship you in Jesus' name, amen. There's been an interesting maturing in the fields of health. And if you think about health fields, whether it's medical doctors or the fields of diet and physical exercise, what they're really about, what they're really going for is transformation. They're seeking to bring something that is deformed into right formation. And there's been a maturing that has happened across the spectrum of all of the health fields in these last decades as they've continued to grow and learn from each other. For example, in the field of physical health, exercise, and diet, not only do they try to bring transformation to the body through right eating and hard work and consistent exercise, but if any of you watched The Biggest Loser, you'll notice that in every scene, it wasn't only for the drama effect of the TV show, Jillian Michaels would not only be instructing on what to eat and how to exercise, but let's get to the psychology of what has caused you to eat the way you eat and the psychology, the motivations for what causes you to exercise or not exercise the way that you should. And so in the field of diet and in the field of physical exercise, they've come to recognize that it's not only about what you eat and about what you do, it's about what motivates you, it's about the psychology within you, it's about what drives you, it's about what you depend upon. And so they work in the field of the soul as much as they work in the field of exercise and physical food. In psychology, they have come to recognize that it's not only what goes on in our minds that affects our disposition, but it's also our biology. It is without question that our food and our exercise and our sleep hygiene affects the way that we feel. In fact, through three months of counseling a number of years ago, I discovered that one of my primary problems was I wasn't sleeping the right way. I wasn't sleeping enough. And so my biology was affecting my psychology. Within the realms of Sociology, they've come to recognize that it's not only the way that a society influences each other that establishes what we do, it's the way we think, it's our philosophy. And within the realms of biology, they've discovered that it's not only the biophysical mechanics that cause problems, those that are around us socially, stress can cause physical problems within ourselves. And the point being, the fields of transformation, the fields of health are beginning to understand that the human being cannot be segmented, compartmentalized. We can't fix and put into right form, that is transform the physical body via diet and exercise, unless we understand that there's a soul in there. There's a mind that needs fixing and transforming. Right motivation. We can't meet the problems of society around us unless we establish that there are other holistic factors influencing the various areas of deformity. We are a holistic being. We are not just body separated from soul, separated from strength, separated from mind. We are heart, mind, body, and soul. And so the health fields are recognizing this and they're learning from each other and they're incorporating all of these different facets of the different disciplines to bring about a holistic therapy, a holistic way of bringing transformation and healing to the person. And we've made great strides. Psychology and psychiatry has come a long way. Biology has come a long way. Exercise physiology and dietetics has come a long way. And though we make great strides towards transformation, we still fall short. We may engage in the best physical exercise program possible, have the cleanest, most pure, most paleo diet possible. 
or zone diet or South Beach diet or whatever the current diet is, we may have the most brilliant psychologist walking us through our deepest feelings and motivations. We may read all of the brilliant sociologists and understand all of the factors that surround us and, and influence us. We may be the wisest philosopher who's ever thought a thought in his life. And it all falls short, huh? No matter what strides we make in transformation, no matter ho how holistic we come and become in our therapies towards transformation, they all fall short except for one message, except for one scandalous, crazy, exclusive truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ affords the human being holistic transformation in full that never falls short. It's why we call it good news. The good news of the gospel, that God became a man, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death that we should have, resurrected in our place, is also the promise to the person who believes that, that one day, heart, mind, body, soul, motivation, strength, will all be fixed. You'll be in right formation, no longer deformed, forever holistically made holy. So Paul has spent a ton of time in these first four chapters. We wrapped up last week, the last half, or the first half of chapter five, where Paul has established that this work that God has done for us is received by us through faith. That we don't work for it. We don't merit God's attention. We don't merit his transformation in our lives by what we give to him or what we do for him, but instead, God has done everything necessary in Jesus Christ to bring us into relationship with him to begin that transformation process. And in so doing, he has sent himself again to indwell us. God himself indwells the church, indwells you, the Holy Spirit indwells you and begins this process from the moment that you confess Jesus is Lord, the moment you become a Christian, the rest of your life until you see Jesus, that sweet, precious day when we finally see Jesus face to face, from the moment you're born again to the moment of your death and eternal life, God the Holy Spirit is in the process of transforming you holistically, entirely, completely, totally. And that's good news. Now, we may put a chipper smile on our face and say, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. <laughs> but you know how it is, those moments of loneliness, when you're just left there with you, and it's only you, and it's just your thoughts, and you, you take a little inward look, and you're like, man, there's a lot of stuff there that I wish wasn't there. You know, there's a lot that I've done that I wish I wouldn't have done. There's a lot that I wish I would have done that I didn't do. There's a lot of motivations and inclinations and imaginations that if they were to be portrayed on this screen, on this Sunday morning, in front of all of these people, I would just walk out of my life in total, utter shame. All of us have something that we are seeking formation in, transformation, right formation. And the gospel and the Holy Spirit and what Paul has laid out for us is the means of that transformation. So what we want to talk about this morning first is to start off with this big word, sanctification. Sanctification, that's what Paul's talking about here in the back half of chapter five and through chapter six. We're looking at how this free life that God has given us, this acceptance that he's given to us, what does a transformed life look like? And at Taproot, we like to take big, complex theological ideas that are very nuanced and entire books are written about them and, and entire seminary classes are devoted to these topics, sanctification, and we like to kind of distill them down to these one little statement tidbits that we can put our minds around. Sanctification is the big biblical theological word for transformation. God is sanctifying you. He is making you different. He is putting you in right formation. He is transforming you. And he is doing that through Jesus Christ. 
Now, the big idea of sanctification and becoming like Jesus, which is what that word means, God is making you like Jesus, is he is perfecting you. He is making you more holy. He's making you more wise. He's making you more tender. He's making you more gentle. He's making you more patient. He is transforming you into fullness, into rightness. And the way that we summarize this big idea of sanctification at Taproot Church and make it simple is we say, God is making you more you. Not the messed up you, but the true you, the right you, the full you. How so? Jesus was God with us. Jesus was fully human, but he was also perfectly human, meaning Jesus was the standard. Jesus was the way that we are to live. Jesus was perfectly loving, perfectly joy-filled, perfectly wise, perfectly self-controlled. He was a perfect human being. And so when Jesus' spirit indwells you, you becoming like Jesus isn't you losing you. It's you becoming you. You becoming perfectly patient like Jesus. You becoming perfectly loving like Jesus. You becoming perfectly tender like Jesus. It's you becoming fully you. And what I want you to see here is that gnarly, nasty list, beginning in verse 19, that Paul lists for us, that he calls the works of the flesh. Those are deformities of human existence. Sin is a deformity of you and I. It's misplaced. It's not right. It's out of form. It's not correct formation of humanity. And so when Paul walks us through that list, and let's just run through it very quickly, and I'll make brief comment on each one of them. See those as a deformity of you, a deformity of humanity, a deformity of society. He says the works of the flesh are evident. And he starts with where all of humanity deforms the most pointedly. Obviously, in our culture, this is so clear, around sex. One of the most intimate and valuable and glorious gifts that God has given to humanity is deformed, and we don't live it truly. We don't live it fully. We don't live it perfectly. And so he says the works of this deformity of this flesh are sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, for those of you that are new to the Bible, this is old school. We're an old school Bible church. This may shock some of you. But sexual immorality is any sort of sex, any sort of sex, If you're asking the question, does he mean this by sex? Yes, I do. Any sort of sex that is not between a man and a woman in monogamous marriage, that is sexually immoral. Wait, are you saying that? Yes, I am saying that is sexually immoral. Well, what about this if you had this idea? No, that is sexually immoral. The Bible is saying that fully functioning humanity, perfect humanity, Fullness of sexuality is immoral unless it is between a man and a woman and only one man and only one woman in covenant monogamous marriage. We don't have time to dig into the whys of that this morning. We're just going to leave it at that. Impurity and sensuality. So that first three on the list all deal with the way that we deform sexuality. And in our culture, we've taken it to such a deformed place that now our identity is not human being. Our identity is gay or straight. That's wrong. That's deformed. That's a strange way of thinking about sexuality. Paul goes on now and he lists these deformities of worship. He says, idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry is where we find any source of joy or contentment or peace outside of God himself. Sorcery is from the Greek word pharmakia. Uh, Definitely think witch with a pointed hat, Harry Potter, all that kind of stuff. But also think drug use. Pharmakia, it's from where we derive our word pharmacy. Paul says drug use and worship of other gods, worship and trust in other sources of strength and joy and peace, that is a deformity of humanity. then Then he goes into the social structures of humanity and The primary deforming factor of sin is that we are now self-turned. We are selfishly, inwardly turned, which means that society is broken up by all of these deformities. What are they? They're enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. 
These are all deformities that we wrestle with day in, day out, and we want to be set free from. And then he ends it with drunkenness and orgies. And he's not only referring to sexual orgies, he's referring to the, the crowd going after whatever will satiate their longing for peace and joy and goodness. Now, if you see these, the works of the flesh, as deformities, the next list is the list of Jesus. The perfect life, the perfect human. And how did he live? You pick it up there in verse 22. The fruit, not fruits, but the fruit, the life, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So sanctification, you becoming fully you, is about you having the life of Jesus come out of you by faith. It is about being transformed and brought into the likeness of Jesus. It is about you fully functioning in an increasing way, in a mature way, in a perfect way, like Jesus did through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, here is where the rubber hits the road. In a church like Taproot, it could be easy for us to lose sight of this next point, so please pay attention. Every Sunday you come here, and you're going to hear, Grace, 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 grace. Gospel, 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 gospel. And it's good. It's good news. You're going to come and you're going to hear, you can do nothing to merit God's favor. You can do nothing to transform yourselves. God loves you just the way you are. Come as you are. And we could, Sunday by Sunday, begin to neglect the fact that we are in a relationship with God and we have a responsible part to play in this relationship. God has done the work for us. God indwells us. God is transforming us. And we have the responsibility of responding to that work, of responding to the Spirit within us, of obediently walking out what God has put into us. And that is what Paul's talking about today. Paul's talking about the part that we play in our process of transformation. It's all couched in. We cannot forget that it's couched in we aren't accepted by and when we're transformed, we are being transformed because we are accepted. Does that make sense? One is religion, one is law, one is slavery, one is relationship, one is Jesus, one is children of God. One damns you to hell. Lost in self-sustaining, inwardly focused faith. The other brings you into a kingdom of light and joy and peace. And what we want to look at this morning in detail is where are we to be responding? What part do we play in this transformation? Because we want to be growing. How many of you this morning, just by a show of hands, want to be fully peaceful, fully joyful, fully loving? Just show me your hands. Very good, church. All right. <laughs> then we're all on the same page. That was like a collective amen. How do we do that? Point number two this morning Transformation comes through community. This has been a great awakening for me over these past months and in our gospel leadership courses with the brothers and sisters that are in there with us right now. This became very clear a number of classes ago. You are becoming you in Jesus, fully you. But you cannot be you apart from other yous. I know the English teachers are freaking out right now, but that just is gonna lock in our brains. You cannot be fully you apart from other yous. Community is the means by which God is bringing about this transformation. And I want to talk about the necessity of this community and the nature of this community. Why do I even say that this is point number one? You'll notice that Paul bookends the passage that we're in here. If you look at verse 13 and you jump over to verse 26, so 13 through 15, Paul's using community language there. He is telling them, look, you have been set free by God to live as a new society of new humanity in the midst of culture. You're free. And he says, you've got to be careful that you don't bite and devour one another, that you don't destroy each other, that you don't envy each other. Those are all deformities that wreck this community within which God is transforming you. Transformation happens in community. Why is this necessary? 
Big theological talk again this morning for us to grasp this. The Bible reveals God as a trinity. He is triune. For those of you that are brand new to the Bible, brand new to Christianity, the God of the Bible is not three separate gods, Father, Son, and Spirit, but he is three separate personages. He is not one God devoid of three essences or three persons, personages. (laughs) Sounding so smart this morning. He is one essence, three beings. It is the great mystery of the revelation of the God of the Bible. It's part of the reason I'm a Christian. No no dude could make this religion up. No dude sits down and says, I'm gonna make a completely contradictory God. (laughs) No, this is the revelation of God himself. He is three persons. And what that means is, simplifying big complex term into short little statements for us, God is a community. God is an everlasting, joy-filled, loving community. God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son look at each other and they're like, I love you, man. No, I love you, man. No, I love you, man. And the Holy Spirit looks at the Son and says, you bring me so much joy. And the Son looks at the Father and says, no, you bring me so much joy. And the Father looks at the Son and Spirit and says, I love you guys. You bring me so much joy. God is an everlasting community. And when he created human beings, we're told we were created in his image. We are designed by community because our God is community. And we are designed for community. The necessity of community in our transformation is because apart from being with one another as social creatures in very intimate and deep and viable relationship, we are actually living like fish out of water. We are denying the very reason we exist. Now, in the United States of America, we have adopted and kind of swam in, and I just refused to bow the knee to it as a pastor of the local church, the autonomous lie that to find joy, to be peaceful, to be happy, I gotta be me, which means if I have to exclude others, cut myself off from a relationship that's viable and intimate and deep because that makes me vulnerable and that hurts me, well, it's all about me. And the more that I can be about me, the more I'll find happiness. And it's funny that we're popping more pills and more depressed and more anxious than any other culture in the history of the world. And so the church sits in the midst of this, not buying the lie of autonomy as the source of joy, but believing the truth of community as a source of transformation and joy. Uh, Dr. Gary Brashears, he didn't mean to do this. I told him I was going to quote him. Said this last week as we were studying the Trinity, and he got off on a soapbox about the nature of individualism in American culture, he said, if God is eternally interrelated and other-centered, that's what God is. God is other-centered. He's centered on Jesus and the Spirit, and the Spirit's centered on the Father and the Son. If God is eternally interrelated and other-centered, and we are the image of God, then our basic quest for self-fulfillment is drinking salt water to quench our thirst. Beloved church, you've got to come aware of the lie that the church has imbibed. The fact that there are countless believers across the land this morning who are swimming in the aquarium of our culture saying, I can go to church occasionally on Sunday morning and experience transformation and that suffices, that suffices for my growth in God. It reveals the anemia of our souls. And so God in his grace has brought you here this morning. You're here. That's God's grace. God is, he's saying to you, hey, I've got ceaseless joy for you. I've got peace for you. I've got transformation for you. Oh, by the way, you can't do that on your own. Can't do it on your own. This is why Paul also says that we as believers have to watch out. We have to be very careful and work hard at community. He makes very clear warnings. Don't bite and devour one another. Don't consume each other. Don't be envying of one another because if God is a selfless community, then his people indwelt by him, image bearers of him, have to be guarded and intentional about being selfless towards one another, which leads us to the nature of this community, which is somewhat scandalous and really hard for our heads to get around. But Paul says you've been set free to be a society of new human beings being transformed, put in right form as individuals and as a community. And the level, the degree to which you are together one with another, 
the English translators really struggled with this, where he says in verse 13, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity to flesh, but through love serve one another. Kind of soft pedals Paul's Greek word there. Paul says through love you're enslaved to each other. You are owned by each other. You own me, I own you. That's the nature of Christian community. It's a deep intertwining, intermingling of one soul unto another. And the, auda- the audacity of the American ideal of individualism is, is cutting the throat of that in the church. We must recognize and we must come to believe that we are enslaved to each other. We are in love with one another. And then Paul quotes Leviticus 19 where he says, look, if you want to fulfill what God's plan was for all of society, for all of time and space and history, love the person sitting next to you as much as you love yourself. And I assure you, despite what the culture has told you that you need more self-esteem and you need more self-love, you and I, we love ourselves plenty. (laughs) We do. The fact that you're depressed and envious says that you're totally committed to yourself. The fact that you're worried and that you're constantly striving says you are totally committed to yourself. So am I. We love ourselves deeply. But Paul says we've been set free from that self-love by a selfless God and a selfless love from our God who is triune community, and he says you're enslaved to each other. You guys think that I just pray for the other churches and pray for the global church on Sundays up here because it's cool? We're enslaved to each other across the globe right now. And this little tiny group of people here in this humongous metropolis, we are a little tiny pinpoint of that light, a little tiny pinpoint of that new society enslaved to each other. And Paul says, watch out. Don't separate from each other. Be selfless. We're going to talk about how to do that. Transformation comes in community, but transformation also comes in the struggle. And this is where we're going to wrap things up this morning. You're becoming you, but you can't become you apart from other yous. That's transformation in community. And the you becoming you (laughs) is a struggle. It is a deep civil war. And here's why. When we are born again, when you commit your life to Jesus, something miraculous happens, something very mysterious The Bible says you are born again, and over and over and over, the New Testament is replete with these types of teachings and these statements, but Paul says it very clearly here in verse 17. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes into you, there's still that old way of doing things, the deformed way of doing things, the selfish way of doing things, the the autonomous individual way of doing things, and he says in verse 17, the desires of the flesh, that's that old way of thinking, that old way of doing, that old way of acting, that old way of saying, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul says there's been a civil war that has now erupted in the Christian that God himself is putting into right formation even your desires, and the desires that God puts in you are going to be fighting with the old desires. And this civil war creates a struggle within the Christian who says, I have these desires to do what God wants me to do, but I still have these deep struggles with those deformities of the flesh, the sexual immorality and the impurity and the anger and the drunkenness and all of these things. Now, it's important to note here as we get into this that the Holy Spirit gives us new desires. And for some of us, there are majorly new desires that are given and they are dramatic and they are instant. And then there are other desires that are given but they're a slow burn. You don't even realize they're there, and they come on slowly. One of the shocks to me as a brand new baby believer was the issue of girls. As a non-Christian, I was an unadulterated, lust-filled abuser and objectifier of women. And when I saw my wife, uh, who, who, who's easy on the eyes, <laughs> she, she, prior to Christianity, would have been a girl where I would have been like, oh, wow, and used and abused her in my mind. But I came smack dab into this new desire, and it was dramatic, and it was a bit disconcerting. She's gorgeous, 
Don't look at her. Honor her purity. What? What is the matter with you? What? No, she's gorgeous. Stare at her lust. No, you can't do that. You need to protect her. And this civil war. And I was shocked by it. I knew something had transformed in me. It's part of the reason I knew she was going to be my wife. Because I was desperate to protect her purity, which I had never experienced with any other relationship in my life. But there are other desires. 20 years now, 18 years walking with Jesus. And I would say the last three years, I've become so desirous to overcome pride. <laughs> like, I didn't even know what pride was until about five years ago. And now there's this deep desire that's just been slow burning for the humility of Jesus, the gentleness of Jesus, the tenderness of Jesus. And what we need to see here is that this transformation, we have our part to play in it. We have our community that we're walking with in the midst of this transformation, and then we have our struggle to which we give attention. We have our part that we play in this transformation process. Notice all the verbs that Paul uses in this passage. I'll read them to you quickly. He says, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, crucify the flesh, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. There's a responsibility, and you'll notice that the majority of our responsibility is to Listen to God, trust in the Holy Spirit, pray, receive, walk in, live by, and take action with these fleshy deeds that are deformed in our lives. So how do we do that? That's the big question. How does transformation come about in the struggle? Before we get to that, I want to give you guys three encouragements, and then we'll close with uh, not four practical points. I apologize for that. Three practical points on how to actually crucify the flesh. And I think you'll be surprised how that comes about. <clears throat> First three points of encouragement. Number one this morning, number one point of encouragement in your processes of transformation. If the struggle is there, celebrate that. Be encouraged by that. That's a mark of your sanctification. The struggle means you are becoming you in the midst of other yous. <laughs> That's awesome. I think so many of us, especially if you've been walking for Jesus for more than four or five years, you begin to have this frustration with the flesh. You begin to have this longing for freedom from all these things that constantly entangle us, and the struggle becomes a discouragement rather than an encouragement. The struggle, the fact that you're saying, I want to grow, I want to mature, that should be an encouragement to you. The fact that this morning you feel guilty or ashamed or wish you wouldn't have or wish you would have, that's a mark of your growth. That means loving God who has accepted you right in the middle of your struggle is saying, keep at it, kiddo, I'm with you. I haven't left you. And I would say, and this needs to be stated so very clearly for the sake of all the souls who ever hear this message and ever read the Bible, if the struggle is not there, you should be scared. Look, I realize in the church world, there's a lot of soft peddling and a lot of flowering and a lot of avoiding certain ideas and texts because they're scary as all hell. And that's exactly what Paul says. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen. I've been struggling, it seems, with the same sins since day one. I'm almost 20 years into this gig. But the, the, the sign of my sanctification, where I take encouragement, is that I'm still struggling. I'm still saying I wish I wouldn't have, I wish I could have, I wish this would change, I want that to change. But we live in a, in, a, in a culture now and in a Christian culture where increasingly the idea of struggle is seen as a discouragement, so don't struggle at all. In fact, we need to do exegetical and interpretive gymnastics around what the Bible says so that we can be comfortable in our idolatry, in our covetousness, in our greed, in our pride, in our false sexual identities, in our sexual immoralities. And it usually starts with this sentence. Well, the Bible says, but for me, individual autonomy. There's a deep, loving warning that comes to all of us. And I would assure you with this, if as I read the passage, 
after all that list of stuff that we are all struggling with right now, sexual immorality and envy and idolatry and, and sorcery and enmity and divisions and fits of anger, all this stuff that we're all struggling with, we can read that passage and we can say, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If at all there's even a glimmer of, oh my gosh, I want to inherit the God, I want to inherit the kingdom of God, that's the mark of your sanctification. Walk assured that you are in the struggle. But if you can go on month after month, year after year, without a sense of struggle over these particular sins, the Bible brings into question your Christianity. And it lovingly does it, telling you the truth. Now there are men and women who will go to their graves. I'm persuaded, I can't, I can't give you chapter and verse on this, but I'm persuaded that some of the homeless guys that are slamming heroin in their veins this morning right now are gonna be sitting in the front row in front of me. I believe that their struggle is so deep. Some of them, some of them, we can't know who. The point being, I think that there are struggles that we will have until we are fully sanctified in our resurrected bodies. Are you struggling this morning? Have you bought the cultural lie that says, let's justify Let's excuse. Let's not fight with our sin. Let's not walk in step with the Spirit. Let's not fear loss of intimacy with God. It's a good and holy and loving warning for us. Number two, though, second encouragement this morning, transformation is agonizingly slow. <laughs> you and I have been trained that it's high-speed internet, fast food, give it to me now, and the golly, gosh darn stupid church has also said, bigger, faster, better, awesome. So the church has been trained that way. The faster it goes and the bigger it is, the better it is. But what you see in the New Testament and what you see Jesus teaching is that weeds grow fast and oaks grow slow. What you see Jesus teaching in the parable of the soils, for example, is he says there are some whose soil was shallow and the weed came up really fast, but as soon as problems hit, they were gone. As soon as the riches of the world began to come around them, it choked it out. And then there was deep soil, and the seed had to go down deep, and it took a long time for that to bear all of its fruit. Agonizingly slow. But be encouraged if you can look back over your life, if you're like me, 18 years now, you can look back over your life and you can definitely see small, incremental, tiny, 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 seemingly imperceptible little changes, little bits of transformation, God is sanctifying you. Celebrate that. And of course, for some, there is the big dramatic change. There's, there's the, I was this, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and now they call me Pastor Danny, and it's still a trip. And then there's the long, slow process of I was a prideful drunk, and now I'm a prideful pastor. Slow, little bits of victory here and there. Celebrate those things. And then finally, third encouragement, your transformation is slow, but it also is seemingly sometimes unseen. But it will happen. Think of it like an acorn going into the ground. A lot of the change that's happening in that acorn to become an oak tree you don't even see it. In fact, you don't even know it. Unless you knew that the acorn was planted there, you wouldn't even know that there was transformation happening under the ground. That's what's happening with you right now. There are unseen things happening deep in the recesses of your soul that are transformative by the power of the Holy Spirit through community, through sermons, through the scriptures, through prayer that are unseen. And eventually that is going to sprout up and there's going to be this fruitful growing tree. And what I find so wonderful about the truth of sanctification is that it will happen as New Testament Christians, no matter what is trying to hold it down. Growing up, I had this favorite sidewalk that I would always hit on my green Freedom 2 BMX bike because there was this massive tree that had come up underneath the asphalt and the sidewalk and had lifted it up. It had literally broke through the cement. The roots had broken through the cement to create like this perfect jump that I could just fly my bike off of. Nothing stopped that tree from coming up. Tiny, tiny little acorn or, I'm not a botanist, pine cone or whatever pine trees grow out of. <laughs> Do they grow out of pine cones? Somebody's nodding their head, yes, okay, so. Tiny little pine cone for all you botanists in the church this morning. <laughs> Goes into the ground, 
and there's asphalt and there's cement on top of it and it's slow and seemingly unseen and all of a sudden one day there's like this tiny, tiny, tiny little sprout. But 40 years down the road, there's an eight-year-old kid jumping his bike over the raised up cement because it broke through. Jesus said that unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it won't bear fruit. And the ultimate in our sanctification and transformation is coming when the cement in the ground is put over our graves. And he says, come forth. Come out of that grave. The good news of the gospel and holistic total transformation of heart, mind, body, and soul is the resurrection. That's what we're focused on. That's what strengthens us. That's what transforms us. That's what steadies us on in the midst of our struggle. That's what commits us to community. We believe that we will break through the graves as Jesus has already gone before us, our big brother, our pioneer of our faith, and we will stand fast, fully, holistically, wholly, entirely transformed. How can we walk in the spirit and crucify the flesh? Three practical points for us this morning from our text. Number one, and this is just kind of a meditation of mine lately, we need to change the way that we think about obedience and denying the flesh. That's all kind of negative language. We think, I'm not gonna get drunk. I'm not gonna get drunk. I'm not gonna lust after her. I'm not gonna be prideful. And in that, we're setting up a scenario of loss. If we reframe it the way the New Testament talks about obedience, it's a scenario of greatest gain. Because every time I choose to crucify my flesh and not take the second look or do something humble or be generous or be selfless. Every time I crucify the flesh, which is an act of my will, I turn from the flesh by the grace of the Holy Spirit in my struggle. Every time I do that, I am gaining more of me, the true me, the peaceful me, the gentle me, the joy-filled me. I think that oftentimes we believe the lie, sin is so deceptive and Satan is so subtle that we think, um, there's going to be some joy there. There's going to be some peace there if I just engage in that work of the flesh. But it's actually a net loss. If we think of obedience and turning from the flesh to peace and gentleness and joy, think of it as turning and becoming more fully you in the midst of other yous. Think of it as the inbreaking of what will be. Every time you don't click on porn, that is a moment where the kingdom is breaking into this world and the way that women were always supposed to be treated in the midst of society breaks in. Every time we give and serve at Transform Burian today, that is an inbreaking of what the kingdom of God will be like in this world. It's an ultimate gain, it's a great gain, it's a joy-giving gain. Every time we are selfless in our marriages and selfless in our relationships and we say, I'm, I'm gonna give up my own desires here to seek the highest flourishing of the person sitting next to me, the person that I'm married to, that is of greatest gain to us because we're becoming fully us like Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. So think to crucify the flesh, it's not a loss, it's a gain. To walk by the Spirit, it's not a loss, it's a gain. Number two, I meditated on this all morning this morning. You've got to belong to Jesus entirely. To crucify the flesh and walk in the Spirit means that you have to belong to him entirely. Read with me there in your Bibles. This isn't me just making this stuff up. Verse 24, and those he, who belong to Christ Jesus, who belong to Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh. To belong to Jesus is to say, my dreams belong to you. My desires belong to you. The direction you want my life to go belongs to you. What you want to do with me belongs to you. And the community you put me in belongs to you. The city you put me in belongs to you. My sin belongs to you. Crucifixion of the flesh comes when we are willing to, in response to the work of the Spirit in our hearts, say, it's all yours. The good, the bad, and this, the downright ugly. It's all yours. I give it all to you. I'm not going to strive over it, labor at it, worry about it. I'm just going to belong to you today in this moment. I'm going to belong to you. That's a crucifixion of the flesh. That's a walking by the Spirit. And then thirdly, we see that we are to come to the cross and see Jesus. I think because the language is vivid, we think of crucifying the flesh as, oh, I'm not going to do it, and it's just this painful, horrific thing. I think a better way of thinking about crucifying the flesh 
is looking first to the crucified Jesus. What do I mean by that? We crucify the flesh when we see the perfect Jesus crucified for our flesh. We come in step with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's whole work is to make much of Jesus. And so when we want to walk in step with the Spirit, and we want to walk at peace with ourselves and and be empowered by God's grace, we've got to start at the cross. We are reflectors, and we become like who we look at. We become like who we look at the most, who we follow the most, who we engage with the most. And so if Jesus is perfectly loving and perfectly joy-filled and perfectly peaceful and our life with him starts at the cross, crucifixion of the flesh doesn't happen by us saying, I gotta crucify this desire. I gotta get rid of this lust. I gotta stop getting drunk. No, 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 no. It turns from that, which is all law and legalism and really a horrible way to live your life, to I belong to you. I'm a prideful, lust-filled, greedy, drunk. I belong to you. All of me belongs to you. And I see you loving me perfectly on the cross. And as you sit and you see the love of God for you on the cross, you're filled with it and it begins to come out of you. You meditate on the crucifixion of Jesus and his love towards you. You sit and you let the Spirit bring you through scriptures. Let me read these to you just as a means of bringing us into communion. How do we crucify the flesh and walk in step with the Spirit? Meditate on how joyful he is to have you. Listen to these passages. For the joy, meditate on this. Think about, do you want joy in your life, like real joy? Not, I got everything I want joy, or I didn't get everything I want, devastation. Meditate on the joy that God has over you. Listen to these passages. For the joy set before him, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen to this passage. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. You want real joy, real love? Sit in front of the cross and see that his joy was you. It'll it'll put a goofy smile on your face. It will. It will settle you in his love where you will be able to say, "I I can love others this way. I can be vulnerable in community because even if they even if they see all of my ugliness, Jesus sees all of my ugliness and loves me perfectly and is joyful to have me. He's not like, oh great, I got this one. I guess I'll let him on the team. Jesus was hung naked joyfully. He despised the shame. He despised what had to happen to him, but his joy was looking at you. Looking at you and having you puts a smile on God's face. He sings over you. Oh, my little Danny, I love you. (laughs) I'm not trying to be like not serious and sober about this, but I think I think the reason we don't have any recording of Jesus laughing in the Gospels, I think his laughter would crush us with joy. We would die of happiness to hear Jesus laughing with us. I think so much of eternity is going to be hearing him just laugh. You want joy? Meditate on that joy that he has towards you. Do you want peace? Meditate on the peace that God has now made between you and himself and in your soul. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Do you want gentleness? Think about, think long and deep and think often about how gentle he has been with you. How tender he has been with you. Do you want to be faithful? Meditate on every point where God has come through. Meditate on the fact that the sun came up this morning. That's faithfulness of God. Meditate on that and be thankful for that and it will birth faithfulness in you. Do you want patience? And remember our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you in the wisdom that God gave him. Do you want patience? Ruminate long on how patient he is with you. That you woke up this morning and weren't wiped off the face of this planet because he is patient, patient, patient. And it will help you to look at your coworker and go, 
I can give him some more time. I'm not going to freak out. It'll help you to look at your wives and your husbands and be like, he was so selfless for me. I can be selfless in this situation. I can I cannot get my way. It will help you to look through the life that you're living right now where you're basing all of your joy on what happens to you or what you get or don't get, and you'll say, nah, the God of the universe is singing over me right now. And to walk in the Spirit, this is the metaphysical part of our Christianity, is to say, God, Holy Spirit, I want to hear that song. I want to hear that song in my heart. Would you help me to hear that song? God, Holy Spirit, Reveal to me how patient you have been with me. Reveal to me how, will you just give me a run through of your, some, some really obvious marks of faithfulness to me? And God the Holy Spirit illuminates those things and grants us new desires. And we in our responsible act of transformation surrender to those inklings, those impressions. And we, we like a little flame, we blow on them and we pray them into existence. And we come to Sunday gatherings to sit under sermons and we, we join Home gatherings, as scary and as awkward as that can feel, we come to the newcomers' gatherings so we can press into community because God is offering us and affording us these points of transformation. Listen, the fields of science and psychology and psychiatry, sociology, exercise and physiology, diet, are going to continue to increase right to the grave. I'm not diminishing the value of all of the various points of therapy and offers of help that this world affords us. But you are going to die. That's one of the most joyful epiphanies we can all have. It's such an awakening to wake up and be like, freedom, freedom is coming, transformation is coming, and the gospel does that for us this morning by faith. We're going to take communion as we do here every Sunday morning at Taproot Church. And as we take communion this morning, <clears throat> I think our meditation together, and it will be as a community. So we'll do three songs like we do every Sunday. But as a community, I want you to, to hold the bread and hold the, the bloodied body of Jesus in your hand, that symbol, that memorial of him, during the songs, get up, get communion, and during the songs, hold it, and I want you to think about the person to your left and to your right. Holding that bread, look at the selflessness of God and say, God, I want to be this selfless to this person I'm enslaved to. Danny, I don't even know this person. Welcome to Christianity. Drink the Kool-Aid, man. It's weird. It's like, <laughs> it's weird. It's weird. We can't sterilize this. No, you don't know each other on that basis, but if you begin to surrender to that truth, I'm enslaved to this person next to me holding the memorial of his body and his blood. It will begin to break into our world. That's revival. Hold, hold, the, hold the body and the blood of Jesus in your hand this morning together as an enslaved community to each other and say, Jesus, Please show me what shame you endured and let me hear the song that you're singing over me right now. In fact, let's make it New Testament. Let's pray this morning as we hold the bread and the cup. Let us hear the song you're singing over us together and yield ourselves to, to God's working by his spirit and where we've been faithless, meditate on the faithfulness of Jesus to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Where we've been impatient, meditate on the patience of Jesus, all while you hold this memorial of what God endured for you, for you, for us. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask this morning now as we come to communion that there would be just that increasing work of your spirit It's an act of faith that we exhibit here this morning to even sing songs to you, which I know for the person in here that's never been in Christianity or is new to worship and all, it can be so strange, Jesus. These people are closing their eyes and talking to the air and they're raising their hands and they're singing songs about and to you. It's just weird. But Jesus, the Holy Spirit, comes and bears witness with our spirits that we are indeed children of God. And so we ask that this morning you would indeed bear witness with our spirits. 
we are enslaved to each other. I pray that you would enslave us one unto another and that we would love each other as we love ourselves in this city, that the churches would love each other as we love ourselves, and in the globe, God, across the land, that the churches would join voices saying, I love you, and I love you, and we would delight in the love that the Father has for us in the Son. Lord, we repent this morning of... of, uh, maybe giving way to the struggle, a sort of resignation that it's never gonna get better. Lord, we don't wanna resign ourselves. We want to reside and abide in your love. Would you encourage this morning as all of these saints hold the bread and the cup, would you encourage them that the struggle is the mark of their transformation and no matter how slow it is, no matter how seemingly unseen it, it, it is, that holding the bread and the cup this morning and the struggle being present is the mark of their sanctification. It's the mark of their transformation. Oh. And Lord, may we just uh, get out of the way of the work of your spirit this morning and be impressed upon with your infinite love and utterly transformed. Before we, before we start to sing, I just, I can't get out of this right now. It's like, one of you just, you're horrified right now. Am I, am I going to go to hell? You know. That is the Holy Spirit. He is speaking to you, and he is, he is wooing you. He's, he's showing you the deformity of your life, and he's saying, I want you to surrender. I want you to trust me. That's, Christianity is not about you getting your life right. You need to hear this. Christianity is about you saying, my life is so wrong and I need God to fix it. And so the way that that happens is by surrender, by a faith-filled surrender where you say, I trust you, Jesus. You can take communion today for the first time as a believer, not as a religious person, but as a believer in that body and in that blood. And you can be enslaved to these other people and, and be promised fullness of joy and peace and love and stop working stop laboring stop striving come to rest in in jesus do that today do that now in this moment lord uh, bring conversions to the south end bring transformation to our cities through christians being born again and made for your glory we now worship you in spirit and in truth we ask that you would guide our time of worship that each of us would yield ourselves to you that you would prompt us and move us and shape us for your glory today. And so we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.